Two weeks ago, uh, there was a couple who was visiting a state park in Arkansas uh, for their anniversary. They had decided to take a multi-state road trip together to celebrate their 10th anniversary. And they crossed multiple states from Minnesota all the way down into Arkansas in the south. And while they were in Arkansas, they decided to stop by a state park. This particular state park is called Crater Diamonds State Park. They were digging and they were sifting through the soil at this state park, and they found a light brown gem. It turns out that it was a 1.9 carat brown diamond. And if you find a diamond in this particular state park, you get to keep it. Here's a look at the couple and their diamond. This park is located in a very unique spot. There's a volcanic vent that is nearby it, and so there's an unusual amount of diamonds there fairly close to the surface relative to other areas. The vast majority, though, of the diamonds are very small. Uh, They say the odds of finding one that is this size, nearly two carats, are about 15 million to one that someone would find something like that. Now, I had no idea that this park even existed until this week. I'm like, I need to change my summer vacation plans. (laughs) How is it possible that a place like this has not been turned into a commercial diamond mine, was the question I asked. Well, as it turns out, it, it, it was. People have tried to go there and start commercial mines many times, but they have failed. Businesses have invested resources, bought equipment, poured countless man hours into seeking out rare diamonds just like this, but they failed to find the success that they were looking for. And meanwhile, here comes this couple from Minnesota which is driving through, and they happen to find it within the first hour of their having been at this park. In today's passage, we're at a transitional point in Paul's argument here between chapters 9 and 11 about the role of Israel and the future of the church. In these 10 verses, in chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, Paul is pulling together a whole bunch of threads that he has laid out there for us, starting in chapter 9. And so now he's pulling them together and recapping them, and he's transitioning us now from Israel's past and their present to consider in the following weeks Israel's future. Remember, Paul is addressing this thorny uh, theological elephant in the room. If Israel was God's chosen people, why are so few of them embracing Israel's promised Messiah, Jesus Christ? Shouldn't they be able to recognize him? Shouldn't they be able to spot him pretty quickly? How are all these non-Israelites, all these Gentiles, coming to accept the promises that were actually given to Israel? How's this working out? How could Arkansas's commercial miners have missed this diamond after putting in so much work? Within a couple of hours, these tourists, know stumble across it as they're just walking through on a trip. Well, if you've not noticed this yet uh, throughout this fall as we've been working through Romans chapter 9 and following, the answer is a little bit complicated. I heard a story this week about a preacher in the UK who began to systematically preach through the book of Romans, started in chapter one, and made it up to the end of chapter eight, and then he went on holiday, that's what they call vacations in England, and uh, when he came back, he started in chapter 12. (laughs) Maybe nobody will notice. But the divine truths that we find in chapters 9 through 11, difficult though they are to understand and wrap our minds around, wrap our hearts around, are important for us. 
We would all affirm that Scripture is breathed out by God. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we are venturing in then in confidence, trusting that God has something for us, something that would humble us, that would glorify God, that would promote our holiness, that would exalt our Savior. So with this in mind, I submit that the big idea of the passage this morning is this. God preserves by pure grace and hardens with pure justice. God preserves by pure grace and hardens with pure justice. Now this passage, these 10 verses, have two rhetorical questions in them, in verses 1 and verse 7. And so we're going to follow those two rhetorical questions, and that will give structure to our sermon this morning. So we've got two points. First, God preserves those whom he foreknew with pure grace, verses 1 to 6. And then second, God hardens those who reject his grace with pure justice. And that's 7 through 10. 7 through 10. We're going to look at the rhetorical questions each in turn, but before we do that, let's go ahead and let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we are grateful for your word and for an opportunity to gather here as as believers, those whom you have called to dig into it. Father, we know that it it takes work to dig out gems, and so Father, we pray that you would help us do that work by your spirit. Help us not to be distracted. Help us to be encouraged by what you have said to us in your word, challenged where we need to be challenged. And we pray for those here this morning who have walked in perhaps with hardened hearts that by your word they would be softened to accept your righteousness that comes only as a gift by faith alone and Christ alone. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one. Uh, and let me just say, if you don't have your Bible open, let me encourage you to go ahead and do that. Open up your Bible and have it in front of you. We'll be going through a few different portions from chapters 9, 10, and 11. Point one, God preserves those whom he foreknew with pure grace. Verses one through six, let me just read those portions again into our hearing. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left. They seek my life. What's God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. God has not rejected his people. Why would Paul even ask this rhetorical question here? Why would he even assume that that would be something that's on the mind of his audience? Well, we need to go back into the passage just before this to understand. If you've got your Bible open, look at chapter 10. We'll just recap chapter 10 real quick. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, remember, chapters 
9 through 11, dealing with this thorny issue related to the nation of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. They are God's chosen people, and yet they have rejected his Messiah. Why didn't Israel do what verse 13 says? Why didn't they call on the Lord for salvation to receive the righteousness of God by faith? Did they not hear the gospel? No, Paul says in verse 18, they've heard it. Indeed, they have heard it. Okay, well, maybe they didn't understand it. No, Paul says they understood it, verses 19 and following. The problem is actually more evident in verse 21 of chapter 10. Here's the issue. Israel is disobedient and contrary. That's the issue. They have rejected God's righteousness. They've tried to keep their own righteousness by establishing it through works of the law, establishing their own righteousness. This is chapter 10, verse 3. Okay, so we have just heard now that Israel has rejected God. Well then, does that mean that God is going to reject them? This is the question. And it's something that he's already mentioned earlier in his letter, actually. Romans 3, verses 3 through 4. Paul says something along these lines before. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? What does he say? By no means. And Paul answers here in chapter 11 with that same strong language as he's done a few times in the book of Romans. May it never be. God forbid. That is not going to happen. He is absolutely positive, Paul is, that God will not reject and has not rejected and will not reject his people. Israel's faithlessness has not nullified God's faithfulness. Well, how is Paul so sure? How does he know this? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, Scripture explicitly and repeatedly says that God will not reject his people. Here's just a few examples. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make a people out of you for himself. So this is the prophet Samuel who's speaking to all of Israel as they've gathered together. He, he is establishing God's preservation of Israel as a people, and he's basing it on God's preservation of his own glory. Israel's preservation is tied to his great name's sake. We see this also a consistent message in the book of Psalms. Here's Psalm 94, 14. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. It's in the prophets too. Jeremiah 31, 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah here bringing the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord says that it is impossible for God to reject his people in the same way that it is impossible to measure the heavens in the same way that it is impossible to explore the foundations of the earth, which reminds us a little bit about what Paul said earlier in chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. These are impossible things. We cannot do that. Therefore, I will not reject you. So in a modern idiom, it might be like, yeah, I'll reject my people when pigs fly. This is the concept that is here. So Paul knows very clearly throughout Scripture, God has said he will not reject his people. Second, Paul knows that God won't reject his people because he himself was converted to Christianity. 
And he says this in verse 1. He says, chapter 11, verse 1, for I myself am an Israelite who has accepted the Messiah. So he says, how do I know God hasn't rejected his people? I am exhibit A. I am an Israelite, and he has not rejected me, even though I rejected him. Remember, Paul was a zealous Jew. Paul rejected God's Messiah with anger and with violence when he first heard about him, and yet God did not reject Paul. He converted him on the road to Damascus. And so Paul knows that God won't reject his people first because God says that he won't clearly in Scripture multiple times, and God is not a liar. And second, he knows because Paul himself is living proof of that fact. Okay, Paul, true enough. I'm tracking with you, but what do we do about the fact that so much of Israel is still rejecting your Messiah, God's Messiah, Jesus Christ? Well, you have to keep two things in mind. First, not all from Israel belong to Israel. Remember, this is chapter 9, verse 6. Chapter 9, verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, Paul uses the word Israel in multiple ways, which is one of the reasons these chapters are so confusing to me. But in order to track with chapter 11, we have to keep this distinction in mind. Not all physical children of Abraham are spiritual children of the promise. Not all ethnic Israel is truly Israel. And Paul uses scripture to establish and illustrate those points in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Now, I know this is confusing, but if we don't get that fact, it's only going to get harder from here. God has a chosen people, Israel, okay? But he has chosen a people within that people called the remnant. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. See you with me? He uses, Paul uses the account of the prophet Elijah to illustrate how this principle has played out in Israel's history. This is our call to worship text earlier this morning that Kevin read for us. In the Old Testament, one of Israel's prophets named Elijah learned a valuable lesson about God's preservation of his remnant. Elijah was faithful to, God's, to, to Israel's God, Yahweh, the true and living God. Elijah was a prophet of God. But at the time, there were many hundreds of prophets who were actually devoted to false gods. And indeed, Israel's own king and queen were wicked. Ahab and Jezebel at the time were devoted to uh, pagan idolatry as well. And they encouraged prophets of the false god Baal to bring their pagan idolatry now into Israel. So many within Israel now are bowing the knee to Baal. And many of their prophets were likely Israelites who had, they have now rejected God. They've rejected Yahweh and turned to Baal, worshiping these false gods. And so Elijah hears about this, not happy about it, obviously, challenges them to a duel on Mount Carmel. And he says, I alone am the last prophet of Israel's God. And y'all got 450 prophets of this false god, Baal. Let's see who actually shows up. Let's go to Mount Carmel and let's, let's do this. Let's duke it out. Let's see what happens here, a spiritual battle that happens there on the top of Mount Carmel. God shows up, Baal doesn't. And so Elijah has the prophets of Baal killed. And so he's thinking, this is great. This is a huge victory for, for the true and living God of Israel. This is going to be wonderful. Maybe Ahab and Jezebel will be excited about this, and they will turn from their wicked ways. But 
Israel's wicked king and queen hear about what happened and they threaten Elijah's life. They're going to murder him. So he runs for his life and we read what Paul quotes from 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19 verse 10, he says, he, that is Elijah, said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Israel has rejected God. That's what it means to forsake the covenant. This is what Elijah is saying here. The Lord then responds in verse 18. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18 says, this is God speaking, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So God will ensure that not everyone in Israel will reject him. He's emphasizing Paul actually when he is quoting this account, when Paul quotes this here, he actually adds a little bit extra just to emphasize God's divine action here. Notice when Paul says it, he says, I will keep for myself 7,000 men. Paul is adding this in here, emphasizing the divine action in creating this faithful remnant within Israel. It's as if God is saying, okay, there might be hundreds of false prophets uh, within Israel, Elijah, and the majority, I would agree, have rejected me, and you might think that you're the only one that's left, but I will personally make sure that not everyone in Israel will reject me. I will leave for myself 7,000. Verse 5 now, Paul is pulling in that concept from Israel's history and applying it to the early church. He says what God did then in preserving a remnant, he has continued to do. So God has preserved for himself a remnant. Okay. God will preserve some within ethnic Israel and not let them reject him. Okay, well, then there's a very natural question that follows from that. What is the distinguishing mark between the faithful remnant that God is creating and unbelieving Israel? It's a very natural question. If God is graciously selecting some within Israel, what is the basis of his choice? Why choose some and not others? Well, verse 5 tells us at the end of verse 5, he says, they are chosen by grace. They're chosen by grace. Remember Romans chapter 9. Look at it if you've got it there in front of you. Romans chapter 9, verses uh, 7 through 9. Remember these principles that Paul has taught us already. The children of promise would be called through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Okay, continue into verse 10 of chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. The children of promise would be called through Jacob and not Esau. Why? Why? Well, it was because like Jacob was a great dude. He was better than Esau? No. Verse 11 very explicitly tells us why one and not the other in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of who works, but because of him who calls. So these principles here are teaching us that there is no inherent difference between unbelieving Israel and the remnant within Israel. They are essentially 
the same. Well, what's the distinction then? The remnant of Israel was not chosen to not reject the Messiah because they were better or more righteous than anyone else. They were chosen by grace. This is the answer that we're given. And Paul continues, and he doubles down in this concept. It's grace, and he says this. If they were chosen by grace, it logically couldn't be on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. So he's really trying to defend and lay out this concept of grace, keeping it pure, unmixed with human will. I take this to mean that God elects some within Israel unto salvation on the basis of his grace alone. It seems to be what Paul is trying to teach us. This is an expression of what has been called the doctrine of unconditional election, that God elects some to salvation not based upon any condition that someone is able to meet with their works, but rather unconditionally, based on his grace alone. God's action in election, I would like to encourage you with this, is unlike our experiences with a recent, a recent national election. Let's not get those two things confused. They have been confused before. There was a well-known preacher in the 1960s who said this, the devil and God held an election to determine whether or not you would be saved or lost. The devil voted against you, God voted for you. So the vote was a tie. It's up to you to cast the deciding vote. Dear friends, there is nowhere in scripture at all that gives any hint that Christians elect themselves for salvation. God is not still counting the ballots to see how things shake out. (laughs) Election is God's work, it is not our work, and it is certainly not Satan's work. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. God has not rejected his people, and notice what Paul calls these people. He clarifies who these people are. He says, whom he foreknew. His people whom he foreknew. Now, some commentators will say that this, this means that they are people that he formerly knew. This is referring to Israel. He knew them formerly in the past. Others will say that foreknowledge relates to God's ability to observe the future. So he has foreknowledge of what is going to happen in the future before it happens. But it seems here that Paul intends more than that. Those whom he foreknew is a relational concept. And if that phrase rings a bell, it came up at the end of Romans chapter 8. The same concept came up in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bible there, go ahead and look at that. Chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined are justified. So I take God's foreknowledge of this remnant, his elect remnant, is a knowledge of his own will for their lives, not a knowledge of their future good works or their future faithfulness. I understand this to mean that God foreknew what he has determined for them. It's a personal, intimate, relational term that is used over and over in the Old Testament, speaking about God's people. They have been called according to his purpose. This passage is speaking of God's interaction with Israel, of course, in a very narrow sense, but it's still illustrative to us about how God relates to you and I. If you have heard Jesus' words of spirit and life and believed them when you heard them, it's because it has been granted to you by God the Father. This is Jesus himself in John chapter 6, verses 60 to 65. You can look that up later if you'd like. That's what Jesus himself tells us. If you've heard this words of spirit of life 
and believe them, it's because it's been granted to you by God the Father. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you have believed in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, the basis of that faith is grace and grace alone. It is a gift of life that none of us has earned. None of us is better than someone else, and that's the distinguishing condition that we have met that has caused us to come to life. No one deserves to be elected by God's gracious choice. It is not our right as sinful humans to be redeemed. As we see in chapter 9, God sovereignly chooses to redeem those whom he freely chose. And the remnant of Israel were chosen to the obedience of faith. And if you believe, the same is true of you as well. If God's grace is conditioned upon anything that you could do or I could do ever, well, then it wouldn't be grace. I think this is what Paul is telling us in verse 6, that if it's not grace alone, it isn't grace at all. Brothers and sisters, if your faith has been preserved down to this very day, then thank God. It is not on account of your goodness that you have turned from a prophet of Baal into a prophet of Yahweh. It's because of the goodness of God. You are preserved by the pure, pristine, and powerful grace of God. This concept of God's remnant is comforting to me, knowing that even in the worst of times, when it appears that everyone around us is bowing to Baal, we can take comfort in knowing that there may be many more of the people of God than it might appear to be at any given point in time. No matter how many fall away, the faith lives on. So don't let apostasy of others strike fear into your heart or despondency or despair into your heart. God preserves his people. Our current events will never get so bad that they can eradicate the undying grace of God. Don't let that be a fear. Elijah was despairing in his original situation because he was walking by sight and not by faith. He's looking around, he's like, I don't know if this is going well, God. And what does God tell him? Listen, there's more going on than what you see. That happens to you and I too, doesn't it? Uh, We live by sight, not by faith. We get discouraged by what we see. But God reminded him, even though things look very bleak, he will not forsake his people. Jesus is alive forever, and so will his church be. Paul was an Israelite, converted by God's grace alone. He was a living example of how God sovereignly preserved a remnant within Israel of Israelites who would remain faithful to him and to his grace alone by his grace alone. But many from within ethnic Israel would still continue in their disobedience. They would reject his grace. So let's keep reading in verses 7 through 10, point 2. Second, God hardens those who reject his grace with pure justice. In verses 7 through 10, let me just read that back. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap 
a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So this is Paul's second question here in this passage. What then? Uh, In other words, what can we conclude about what was just said? Well, let me put verse seven up for you with what I hope are clarifying notes. This is how I'm reading this verse here, verse seven. Ethnic Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, which is to say the remnant within Israel, obtained it, but the rest, which is to say unbelieving Israel, were hardened. So again, these two groups within the one nation of Israel, the elect remnant, who are blessed with salvation, and the rest, who are hardened by God in their unbelief. In other words, that which Israel is seeking, it did not obtain, but the elect did obtain it, and the rest were hardened. Okay, well, what was Israel seeking? Uh, What is this verse even talking about? Earlier we read that Israel was seeking righteousness. At the end of chapter 9, at the beginning of chapter 10, they desired right standing with God. They wanted righteousness. They were searching after it hard. They craved justification. They were zealous for it. But they were going about it in the wrong way. Righteousness was the treasure that Israel was seeking. And the treasure map that they had been given was God's law. But they misinterpreted the map. See, if they had followed God's treasure map of the law rightly, it would have led them to the end of themselves. And when they realized that they can't keep God's law perfectly, well, then they should have given up any hope of establishing their own righteousness and then turned in faith to accept God's righteousness when he offers it by faith alone in Christ alone. So they were following the map, and it seems like they should have turned left at Albuquerque, got off track a little bit. The Jews sought their treasure in themselves, and they missed it. They sought the treasure in themselves, and they missed it. So if you're not a Christian, or even a Jew, for that matter, you probably still know what it feels like to search after righteousness. Even if you've never heard this Bible passage before, you probably know this experience. We all want to be justified. You know you lack something, even if you don't know what that is. You're looking for someone to tell you that you're okay. But everywhere you look, all you find is guilt. Uh, You're not personally doing enough to end global injustice. You're not listening to your parents enough. Your grades aren't quite what they ought to be. You haven't closed that deal that we were expecting you to come through with. Your house isn't as clean as it ought to be. And when we don't understand that we are meant to receive God's righteousness as a gift, instead of trying to establish our own, we end up confused and trying to establish our own righteousness by turning on each other. What can only be a vertical transaction of God declaring us righteous, we turn into a a horizontal transaction and us comparing ourselves to one another and saying, well, at least I'm more righteous than that guy. And so we judge each other based on changing social norms. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person who you fill in the blank. I'm sure you've got some things that come to mind. At least I'm not as bad as that guy who votes for the wrong party, who drives the wrong kind of car, 
who doesn't support the right social issues that I think are important. If we don't recognize that God is our judge and he declares us righteous, we turn into the judge and we try to declare ourselves righteous, well, at least more righteous than other people, ourselves. Or we try to defend ourselves when that inner lawyer comes out, when in the reality, we should simply confess and repent. God has declared us righteous. We need not fear to confess or repent and recognize that yes, we are sinful and we need to grow. And God in his mercy sometimes shows us that. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a TikTok channel. You don't need a self-help book who will give you the message, you're okay, I'm okay. Just accept yourself. That is not the message we need. You're not okay, and you know it. And so when someone tells you you're okay, you're like, hmm, you probably don't know me as well as I do. You're not okay. I'm not okay. And that's not okay. But guess what? The gospel is true. Maybe you just need to hear Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Israel wanted to be justified in God's sight by their obedience to the law. Righteousness only comes through faith, not through the works of the law. But unbelieving Israel rejected that reality. They said, no, I've got this. The elect obtained that righteousness of God, but the rest, unbelieving Israel, refused to recognize Jesus for who he is, as the gift that he is offering to them. And that disbelief was reinforced by God when he hardened them. Look at the end of Romans 10. It's important to keep this in mind. The end of Romans 10, he says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is what describes Israel here. And so God, in an act of righteous judgment, hardened them so that they might not be able to recognize grace when they find it. He hands them over to their stubbornness. This is a judicial hardening. Paul stitches together a couple of Old Testament passages to make his point, Deuteronomy 29 and then Isaiah 29. He's pulling these ideas together to illustrate the point that God has justly given them over to a spirit of stupor. He's befuddled them. They're stupefied. They can no longer see or hear the message of God's grace. They can't sense it. Uh, they are insensitive to the gospel in that sense. So God hardened unbelieving Israel, but it doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their unbelief. Hear that, recognize that. Again, just read 1021. They heard and understood and rejected God's righteousness. And so God hardened them in their disbelief. The elect were not hardened in their sin and disobedience, even though they deserved it, just like you and I. But because of God's great love and his grace, the elect remnant didn't get what they deserved. Instead, they got mercy. And then Paul quotes Psalm 69, verses 9 and 10, Romans 11. It says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, 
a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now this is, this is a, as I said, from Psalm 69. King David wrote Psalm 69 and he wrote it as a malediction. You know what a benediction is, right? It's a good word, a blessing. A malediction is a, a, a bad word, a curse. And so David is writing this as an imprecatory psalm is what these are often called. Asking God to enact his justice, meet out your justice on those who are persecuting me, your chosen king of your people. This particular psalm is quoted a lot in the New Testament, and it is very explicitly connected with the person and work and ministry and suffering of Jesus Christ himself. And so Paul now is pulling these words of David's psalm, and he's saying that they're fulfilled, they're given their fullest meaning in the life and ministry of Jesus, and now he's connecting that, suggesting that God is enacting his justice upon the enemies of Jesus, which is unbelieving Israel, those who have resisted his gospel and have persecuted him. And so this curse that Paul is alluding to from Psalm 69 is on those who would oppose God's chosen Messiah. He's applying it to unbelieving Israel who has rejected Jesus. Uh, What does their table mean? When I read this, that made no sense to me. And the reality is we probably don't want to press too hard to try to figure out what exactly that table means. There's a principle here that Paul is applying to the situation but I, I, would, I would take it to mean that the blessings that Israel was given, this table that God set for them, now has, has turned, in a sense. Remember, we saw earlier in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. The Israelites had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. All of these things God gave specifically to Israel. These were gifts set on the table for them. But instead of those gifts which were meant to lead them to grace, they became trapped by them and they fell into the pursuit of righteousness based on their own works. So he set the table for them, they rejected it, and now the tables have turned. We know, friends, that the righteous shall live by faith. So when we hear this principle here in in this text that we need to seek after the righteousness of God, We need to keep this in mind. This is not something that was a one-time thing that we're done with now. If you have found the righteousness of God and if you have received it as a gift, don't think that the story is over. Let me encourage you to keep digging. There's more to be found. Keep pursuing faith. Keep seeking God's righteousness by grace alone and apply that to every area of life in your parenting, in your marriage, your community, your workplace, your family in general. Let God's unmerited, pure grace influence the way that you treat others. Bring this gospel to life in your own life and in the lives of others. For those who have not received God's righteousness by faith in Christ alone, my earnest hope and prayer is that hearing his word would pull you out of your slumber. If the thunder of the law doesn't wake you up, hopefully the sweet sound of the gospel will do the trick. God has not rejected his people. He will not reject his people. He did not reject his people. He preserves them on the basis of his grace alone. And one of the ways that God preserves his people 
by grace alone, is through the heavenly meal. Uh, It is a source of strength and encouragement for the people of God. And when I say heavenly meal, I'm speaking of the Lord's Supper, communion. In this meal, Christ offers us himself to strengthen and to preserve and to enliven the faithful, both in body and in soul. I'll invite those who would be willing to come up and help us distribute the elements of communion now.